Amen. If you have your Bible today, let's open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, then get one of the black pew Bibles that's on the end of each pew, and it should be on page 992 in that Bible. If you don't have a Bible at all, then keep that Bible. It's our gift to you. Um, So we are going to read from 1 Timothy 3, and then even though it's not officially one of our texts today, um, we're going to keep our finger there and also read from Titus chapter 1, which is on page 998 in your pew Bible. So let's go ahead and read these passages right now. 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless." Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And as I said, I'm going to read you also from Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is Paul's instruction to Titus. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We, over the last couple of weeks, have taken a break from Romans in order to look at some passages having to do with elders in the church. We're calling this Bible Blueprints for Church, and we're not covering everything about how church ought to be done. We're focusing in in particular on this idea that we're confronting in our own church of the Bible blueprints that God has laid out specifically in terms of leadership, in terms of, uh, of the plural eldership, the plural pastorate that the Bible seems to prescribe and hold up to us both by command and example as what each church ought to do or to be striving for it and striving for and praying for it. So the last two weeks we've covered first of all the fact that we need to look at the New Testament in its blueprints for how it is that it says that we ought to do church. The explicit commands that are there as well as the examples. As we looked at 1 Corinthians 3 together and saw that the way that the church is built up is precious to God. 
that there is the foundation, the most important thing, which is Christ himself and being built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then how we build upon that foundation, how we structure and build up the church of the Lord Jesus is not inconsequential. It actually matters to God that we should build up the church with gold and silver and precious stones according to the instructions that God has laid out and with the materials that God has prescribed, not with wood and hay and straw, the things that man would come up with. So that's what we saw the first week. Last week, we saw in Scripture together, I hope we all saw together, that the Bible gives us the norm that every church, whether big or small or anywhere in between, every church ought to either have or be praying to have multiple elders. That seems to be the norm in Scripture, even as it says in James, if any of you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. As Paul called together the elders of the church in Ephesus, as the, the, the letter of Philippi to, of, of Philippians is written to the, uh, the, the members of the church and the deacons and the overseers of that church. We saw that together. But today we want to ask the question, if we're doing this, who is it that should be an elder? Who should be an elder? That's a big question. And here is the answer, very simply put, whoever God would make an elder should be an elder. Whoever God thinks should be an elder should be an elder. Some of those may be those who in the future their hope is to devote their entire lives and careers to eldering, to pastoring, that they may want to go and pursue seminary education and to, to make it their job and their vocation to be an elder. Others, it would just be that God would give them the gifts and the graces and the sanctified desire for the office to serve as a lay elder, a lay leader and shepherd within the church. But whoever it is that God would qualify and call are those that we should recognize and uh, as having been raised up for us by God. Now, on the other hand, what if God had not given us anyone who's qualified? Is it our job to simply fill a certain number of positions and to see who it is that we could get to do it? Well, the answer to that is no. I mentioned this a little bit last week. This is this question of who should be an elder. It's not the kind of thing where you're trying to figure out who can volunteer in the kitchen this week. That's the kind of thing that is an important job in the church, but you can kind of go down a list of people and call them, and as soon as somebody says yes, you say thank you. Go to the kitchen. You can't do that with elders because God has laid out very specifically in his word, here are the qualifications. And I'm going to put this very plainly. If, if we were to go through all of the steps that we have in front of us as far as laying out the proposed revised constitution, talking through it, voting on it, all of the things that would be involved in that, and then we were to look in our church and we were to see we don't have anybody who is both qualified to do this and willing to do this, then the, we, we wouldn't then move on to those who are unqualified and yet willing we would just say, we just don't have anybody. And so we got to pray that God would do this. we got to pray that God would grant the gifts, the graces, the sanctified desire that he has laid out in Scripture. This is what an elder looks like. 
and that God would be the one who would bring it together. Al Martin, in his pastoral theology book, he said this, it would be far better for a church to live with the burden of a vacant pulpit, receiving ministry from sister churches while crying to the Lord of the harvest that he would fill the pulpit with someone whom Christ has endowed with the necessary gifts and graces, than to push a man into the pulpit who has the gift of gab and the charisma of a charming personality, but who would not fare well under the searching light of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Now, we're not, you're not going to have an empty pulpit unless the Lord takes me home, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. But as I said, even if we go through all of these steps and we vote to do this and all of these things, if the Lord is not going to provide us with qualified men, then we won't have qualified men. So we have to do what Jesus said. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. And one of those places he would send out workers is right here in First Baptist Church of Matawan to raise up those qualified workers. Let's look together at these scriptures that we just read. We're looking mainly at First Timothy 3, and as I said, we're going to reference as well as we go along Titus chapter 1. What we have, first of all, if you're following along that outline on the back of your bulletin, we have just here an indication in First Timothy 3 uh, that there are two and only two offices in the church. There are only two kinds of officers that the New Testament lays out. Those are elders and deacons. Now, elders, as we talked about last week throughout the New Testament, there are interchangeable words for the same office. Those words are overseer, elder, and pastor, occasionally with other words as well, like leader. But you have here in 1 Timothy 3, 1, here's the office of overseer. That's what we're calling elder or pastor as we're going through this, as it explicitly calls it in, in Titus 1, elder. But then you get down to verse 8, and it says, here's the other office, deacons. Okay, so these are the two offices of the church. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about the differences between those two offices, how elders and deacons should be distinguished from each other, what should be their interaction with each other, what is the interaction between them and the congregation, how should all of this be laid out as far as, as the structural leadership of the church. And we're, we're going we're gonna to get into that next week. But I just want to say for now, you have here the two offices of the church with two sets of qualifications. And I also want to point out to you that these two sets of qualifications are not that different from each other. They kind of get at the same general ideas as each other, that this needs to be a godly, spiritually mature man. Now, there are a couple of things that are put into the, the qualifications for elders that are beyond the qualifications for deacons. And we're going to get to those things as we go through that. But we, as, as we see the qualifications for deacons, we're going to take that as kind of a built-in to the qualifications for elders as well as part of what these elders ought to live up to by the grace of God, by the grace of God. I want to say, too, that as we, as we look at these things, we have to recognize that the only possible way that any man is going to fit these qualifications is by the grace of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. When, when we see that somebody meets the qualifications that are laid out here, we don't go and we don't say, wow, that guy has really, really done it. 
What we're called to do instead is to turn to God in thankfulness and say, God, this is evidence of your working. This is evidence of your grace. Where we see that somebody has been caused to meet the necessary qualifications that are here, to be a shepherd of our own souls in our own church, what we should do is we should turn to God and we should say, God, thank you. Thank you for doing that. A lot of these qualifications, though, are qualifications that every Christian is called to meet. And that's the second thing. Just keep following along on the outline, okay? So I don't have to say the first thing, the second thing, all that, all right? These are qualifications, for the most part, that every Christian is called to meet. These things have to do with just living the Christian life, pursuing God as every Christian is called to pursue God, as every Christian is called to live. So let's think through those things. I've said that these are mainly in in verses 2 through 5 and in verses 7 through 12 in 1 Timothy 3, but let's just think about what these are. First of all, it says in verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach, above reproach. Or then for a deacon, the way that it's put in verse 10 is he must be blameless, above reproach and blameless. Now, I remember one time when I was teaching through the qualifications for deacons with a group of deacons, and one of those deacons says, this seems to be an impossible standard. Above reproach, blameless, nobody meets that. Well, I'm here today to submit to you that those words don't mean sinless. Okay? If those words meant sinless, then the Apostle Paul could not have been an elder. In fact, nobody ever could have been an elder or a deacon except for Jesus himself, if that was what it meant. We know that because the Bible tells us in James that, there, that everyone stumbles in many ways. It, it, it tells us in 1 John uh, 1.8, it says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So when it says above reproach and when it says blameless, it can't mean somebody who never sins. In fact, we have to acknowledge, uh, just as the, the Baptist Catechism says, that every single one of us, un- until we get to heaven, daily breaks the law of God in thought, word, or deed. So blameless, what does blameless and above reproach mean? Well, what it means is somebody who doesn't have anything obvious in their life where you would, you would say, because of this, clearly he needs to go and to get this taken care of before he would take a position of leadership in God's church. That's the idea here. And this idea of being above reproach and blameless, well, it's explained by a lot of the other things that are here in this text. And again, I want to submit to you, this is the call for every Christian. Every Christian is called to be above reproach. Not every Christian is, but every Christian is called to be. To be in a position where if there is something that we need to take care of in our lives that is a, this glaring thing, this is how I ought to be following God, that we take care of it. Some of these things that are listed here is that a, an elder is to be a lover of good, upright, and holy. It says these things in Titus 1.8. 
in the requirements. Loving good. Not on the one hand saying, yeah, I, I get what's good. I see what the Bible says about good things, but you know what's really funny? You know what really makes me smile and delight is when I see evil. Now, that ought not to be in Christians' hearts and certainly not in an elder's heart. To be upright, to be holy, to be set apart for the Lord in his life. It says in verse 8 that he's not to be double-tongued. What does double-tongued mean? Well, it means talking one way to this group of people over here because they'll like that. Talking another way to this group of people over here because they'll like that. No, this is to be a man of integrity. And Christians, we are to be people of integrity, not double-tongued. It says in verse 9, holding the faith with a clear conscience. And all of us ought to hold the faith with a clear conscience. Hold the faith with a clear conscience. It says in Titus 1.9 that he ought to hold to the trustworthy word as taught. As taught. Not just an idea of, yeah, I believe the whole Bible, but when I come to church, I totally disagree with everything they say. No, to, to hold to the trustworthy word as taught with a clear conscience. To be blameless, as it says. Another thing that it says that an overseer is to be is the husband of one wife, as it says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. Something very similar about deacons in verse 12 also repeats this in Titus 1, 6. What does husband of one wife mean? Well, does it mean that to be an elder that a man must be married? Well, the answer to that is a clear no. Because otherwise, the Apostle Paul would be disqualified. And the Lord Jesus Christ would be disqualified. If we're going to hold up uh, an interpretation of this verse that would disqualify Jesus from being our pastor, then I think we've got it wrong. So I don't think it is saying that he must be married. I don't think it's saying that he must be, uh, have children. I do think it's saying that this needs to be someone who is committed not to breaking the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And all of the implications that would come out of that commandment throughout Scripture. Someone who is pure. Someone who, if he is married, that he is dedicated to his wife, and there is no question about that. Someone who is committed to purity in his life, not looking at that movies and websites and things that, that are putting these images of other other women in front of his eyes that it just ought not to be, but instead to be pure in his devotion to his wife or even in his singleness to be committed to purity. To be a one-woman man is literally what that says. And again, every single Christian is called to be pure and holy in these ways. Every single one of us. To be sober-minded and disciplined, and self-controlled, as it says in verse 2 and in Titus 1.8. Sober-minded. Now, obviously, that would get to what it says in just a minute, not to be a drunkard, not to have, uh, have substances that would be mind-altering, that would be uh, taking away that sober-mindedness, but also just to be a clear thinker. Somebody who is able to look at a situation, think through it clearly, to be able to come up with a plan of here's what we should do. To be sober-minded, to be disciplined. Not to be somebody who is lazy and, and never in their Bible and never doing the steps that they know that they need to be doing in their lives, but to be disciplined, to be self-controlled. And again, these are things that all Christians are called to. 
to be respectable and dignified, as it says in verse 2 and verse 8. That, that an elder ought to be somebody who, when he comes in the room, that he's recognized as somebody who's worth taking seriously. That's kind of what that, that means. And Christians, we ought to be people who are worth taking seriously, who, who have a view of life that is serious and not just all a joke, not just all nihilistic or something like that, but to be respectable and dignified, to be hospitable, to be willing to receive people into our homes, to go to trouble and expense in order to help meet others' needs, even to take people in when they might need that. Not a drunkard. Now, it doesn't say in any of these qualifications, verse 2, verse 8, Titus 1, 7, it does not say that he can never take a sip of alcohol. It doesn't say that. If that were the case, again, Jesus would be disqualified from being a pastor. But not to be a drunkard. Not to be bound to substances of any kind. And if that temptation might be there at all, to be willing to say, I will never again touch it for the rest of my life for the sake of being set apart to Christ and the service of his church. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, it says in verse 3. Very similar in Titus 1.7. Not to be somebody who flies off the handle. Not to be somebody who would go home and beat his children. Be harmful to his, his family, his wife. He can discipline them in the Lord. He can spank without anger and with prayer over his children. But not to be violent, but to be a gentle man. A gentle person. Again, this is something all of us are called to. Don't be violent. Be gentle. It says in verse 3, not quarrelsome. Or in Titus 1.7, not to be arrogant or quick-tempered. There are Christians who think that it is holy and sanctified to be quarrelsome. They think that it is a, an extreme act of devotion to God to constantly be in fights. As though the fact that they are in fights all the time is an indication that they are faithful while everybody else is just milk toast. That's not the picture that we have in Scripture. Even as we stand for truth, even as that will occasionally come up against others in a way that is uncomfortable, where we have to remind ourselves, I must not back down, I must not fear man, I must fear God, that will happen, and yet that ought not to characterize the life of a Christian and ought not to characterize the life of a, a, an elder, a pastor. Don't be quarrelsome. Don't be arrogant. Don't be quick-tempered. And it says, not a lover of money, in verse 3. Now, does that mean that it has to be someone who is poor? No. Does it mean that it has to be someone who is rich so that he won't worry about money? No. But the Bible says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You can love money whether you have it or not. And this says that we ought to be free from the love of money. And certainly an elder ought to be free from the love of money. In these pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, Titus, other places in the New Testament, whenever it starts to speak of false teachers, one of the things that almost always comes up is the love of money and the motivation of money and trying to fleece God's people out of money. That can't be present in the life of an officer of Christ's church. And it ought not to be present in the life of any Christian. It says that he ought to manage his household well. 
This is in verses 4 and 5. It's in verse 12 in the qualifications for deacons. It is in Titus 1.7 as well. It talks about keeping his children submissive or keeping his children faithful. This is something that every single Christian ought to be doing. Whatever it is that God has put in our care, in our stewardship, we ought to be caring for it well. And fathers, you need to be leading your households well. You need to take responsibility for your own household, especially in things like saying, where is our money? Where are we going to prioritize what we spend? Where is our time? How are we going to prioritize our calendar? How am I going to lead my family in the Lord? How are we going to set aside time on a daily basis to be in the Word of God and in prayer together, what we would call family devotions? By the way, if that's something that's not present in your family right now, or that you need some help with, there is a book back in the book note called Family Worship by Don Whitney. Highly encourage you to go pick up a copy. But he needs to manage his household well. There is a question of the, the translation of a couple of words, like in Titus 1.6, it translates this word as believing, like he has to have believing children in the ESV. And it translates the same word in, in um, 1 Timothy 3.12 as faithful. And the question is, which is it? Does he have to have children who are all believers, or does he have to have children who are faithful? Well, we put that together, and I think what we have here is not the idea that he must have converted all of his own children's souls to faith in Jesus. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But I think what it's getting at is that this needs to be someone who manages his household faithfully. That if he has things going on with his wife and his children that are alarming, that that may or may not mean that he's unfaithful in his management of his household, but that he, he just needs to devote his attention to those things until they can be taken care of. It says that he must be, verse 7, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Now, this is an interesting question, isn't it? Didn't Jesus say that they're going to hate us that if they have hated him, that they're going to hate us as well? He did say that. Didn't Jesus actually end up crucified by outsiders? Yes, absolutely. But I want to submit to you today that even Jesus fits this qualification of being well thought of by outsiders. There were certain things that came to the point where, for example, he would not stop claiming that he was God. And that was the direct thing that led to his crucifixion. They, they put him on trial before the Sanhedrin, found him guilty of claiming to be God, and he said, you're right. I'm the son of man whom you're going to see coming on the clouds of heaven. And they said, this is blasphemy. He must be put to death. He, he was not going to stop saying what was true. But you also have to remember, he, throughout his life, he was invited over to the Pharisee's house for dinner. He had crowds of thousands who were coming to see him. He was well thought of by outsiders, even as those outsiders eventually crucified him. You see this in the lives of other faithful believers in, in Scripture. People like Daniel. Daniel was well thought of by outsiders to the point that he was asked to be this, this leader over the kingdom. And he was also thrown in the lion's den because he was faithful in his prayer life. It's amazing, isn't it? 
So you kind of see that. This is, this is something we need to know as Christians, and this is, is a characteristic that needs to be in the life of an elder. Even as there will be certain things that he's not going to back down on in the truth of Scripture that the culture around us will not like, that he needs to be somebody who is nice to be around, well thought of by outsiders, somebody who is actually caring toward the people in the world that God would put in his life to where they're going to see that and they're going to respond. All this put together, I'm just going to summarize this as saying, elders must be godly. Elders must be men who would follow after the instructions of Scripture of what it is that we are to do to be set apart as holy people and to live godly, upstanding lives. There are also, within these, these passages, there are disqualifications. I, I didn't even read this far in Titus, but in Titus chapter 1, immediately after he gets done listing out the qualifications for elders, he lists some disqualifications. Listen to these. In Titus 1.10, it says, There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. It says that they teach for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. He says that they are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. He says that they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You know what one of the things that that tells us is? Paul is directly telling Titus, there are some who do not meet the necessary qualifications of godliness who will desire the office of elder who will try to set themselves up as leaders over God's people for shameful gain and for their own purposes rather than for the purpose of serving God and his people. And we have to be aware of that, that there would be those who would attempt to fool us, who would attempt to get into a certain position but then would turn out rather instead to be seeking after themselves. One of those marks is to be insubordinate. One of the, that tells us that there is a mark in a godly man's life of appropriate submission to the authorities that God would put over him as life. If you've got a guy who is just constantly thinking, I cannot deal with all of the things that my boss puts on me. I cannot deal with all of the things that the government says I ought to do. I cannot deal with all of the things that the Bible says that I need to be following after the Lordship of Christ. He's demonstrating an insubordination, and he may have a desire to be a leader just because he is arrogant and doesn't want to submit to someone else. He could be an empty talker. He could be a deceiver. But instead, what are we to do? Well, verse 10, let them be tested first, and let them serve if they prove themselves blameless. There's more qualifications for eldership as well that are not simple things that are are just required of every Christian. One of those things is that elders must be men. Not every Christian is required to be a man. Did you know that? I'm so thankful for that. So much of this church is just undergirded and happens because of the faithfulness of the, the women in this church who love Jesus and love their families, and serve faithfully, and do so, so much. When we say that elders must be men, it's not because we think that men are superior to women. It's not because we think that men are created in the image of God more than women. 
No, Genesis 1.27 says, male and female, he created them in his image, male and female. It's not because we think that male believers have a higher status with God than female believers. It says explicitly in Galatians 3 that they don't, that male and female are both equal heirs as sons of God in Christ Jesus. The reason that we say this is because we believe the Bible, and we believe that God exercises lordship over us in the Bible, and it says explicitly that he has distinguished differing roles between men and women, especially in the home and in the church. And we want to follow those instructions. And he's told us in places like 1 Corinthians 14.34, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. I'm not going to do a full exposition of that verse right now, but at a minimum, this would say that it should be men who are in that role of elder, and men who are in the pulpit. Second, 1 Timothy 2.12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Again, I'm not going to go into the fullness of that, but I'm just going to say this. This is what the Scripture says, and we need to trust God. He is right, and he has given us what is right and what is good. Now, there, is it possible that there are some women who would do a better job than some men at eldering? Of course. And yet, God has said, here's my plan anyway. Here's how I've decided to lay this out. And so we want to submit to that and agree with God and rejoice in his instructions that elders must be men. Another thing that elders need to have, that not every Christian needs to have, is a desire to be an elder. To, to have a desire for the task, but with humility. Now, some would call this a call to ministry. Uh, sometimes you, you would ask various Christians out in the world, well, who should be a pastor? And the main answer that you would probably get is, well, whoever God has called to be a pastor. And we agree with that. The Bible agrees with that. But the question is, what do you mean by called, right? What do you mean by called? There have certainly been a lot of people who ended up in seminary and even in pulpits and in church ministry who were there because they had convinced themselves that they had been called to be a pastor. And yet, if you were to compare their lives and their beliefs to 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, or, or to Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, you would see... This is not someone who ought to be serving in the role of an elder. And so you put that together and you say, well, what does it mean then? What was that experience that they had? You know, when I, when I was serving in youth ministry at the church that we were at in Kentucky, there was a young lady who, she was a senior in high school when I met her, and she said, God has called me to ministry. And I, I tried my best to talk through her, that with her, couldn't keep her from going off to a liberal Baptist college. <laughs> She's now in a prominent pulpit in a liberal Baptist church. But we would look at the scriptures and we would say, God has set that office apart for men. And so I don't know what the experience was in her life, but it was not the call of God. So we have to be careful because there are lots of people who say that they have been called. Joseph Smith said that he had been called. Joseph Smith had quite a story about being called. And yet, what does the Bible say? 
The Bible says even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a different gospel than the one that's been preached, let him be accursed, right? So what do we have? Well, we have in Scripture what we call an internal and an external call. And that involves, first of all, that internal call of someone's desire to the task, and then combined with the external call of the church recognizing this is someone who meets with the gifts and graces that God has described in the Scriptures of someone that he would have to serve in the role of an elder. That internal call, it has to do with an inner desire to do the work. It says this in 1 Timothy 3.1, the saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's saying it is good if somebody that God has qualified wants to do this. He says if they desire it, it is a noble task, therefore, That therefore in verse 2 is saying, here's all the qualifications. The qualifications are in place because of what it just said. It is a noble task that he desires. We need to pray that God would not only qualify men to serve in this way, but also grant them what we would call a holy and sanctified desire to do the work. If somebody seems like they are qualified, but they just have no desire to serve as an elder, well, that's an indication that they ought not to serve as an elder. It says in 1 Peter 5 that they are not to do this under compulsion, but willingly. There has to be a sanctified desire. But at the same time, that sanctified desire needs not to be an arrogant desire. It could be that someone says, I want to be an elder, Because if I got to have my say, then things would finally go the way that they really ought to go. If I got to be up there, then people would finally have respect for me. If I, if I, if I, what this needs to be is a humble desire. Not a desire to to show off or, or to just take charge and seize the reins of power or something like that. This needs to be something that would come as a sanctified and humble desire. I quoted Al Martin in his pastoral theology a minute ago. I'm going to do it again. Here's here's what he says about this. No one should consider himself called of God to the work of the ministry who has the mindset that the church exists to promote the man and his gifts. Rather, a man equipped by Christ and truly called to the work of the ministry will recognize that he exists to promote the advancement of Christ's kingdom in and through his church being a bondservant to all as Christ was to us. Here's how Jesus put it. When his disciples came up and two of his disciples asked for the highest seat in heaven, he said, he, he, he called them to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Guys, we need to pray that God would grant us men that he has given the necessary graces, that he has given the necessary gifts, and that he has given a humble, sanctified desire to self-sacrificially serve God's church in shepherding and leading. That's what we need. There's two other things that are in the qualifications for elders that are not required for all Christians and that are not even required for deacons. 
These are the two things that set apart elders from every other possible role of serving in the church. One of those is that an elder must not be a new convert. This is in verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. What's the condemnation of the devil? Well, that is the condemnation wherein the devil himself, as an angel in heaven, before his fall into sin, thought that he could take charge, that he could step up, that he was the new kid in town who was going to show everybody who was boss. And what happened? He rebelled. He fell with a third of heaven's angels. And there is no plan of salvation for fallen angels. And it says here, don't put somebody into the position of elder who is a new convert. They need to have some time in the faith or else they'll be tempted to that same kind of puffed up, conceited, arrogant sin that Satan himself had and fell into that condemnation. Now, does that mean, does that mean that elders need to be old? I talked about this last week and I'm going to reiterate it today. It does not mean that they have to be old. We know that, as I told you last week, from 1 Timothy 4.12, where Paul is speaking to Timothy, who is an elder and even the primary preaching elder of the church in Ephesus, and he says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and in conduct and in love and in maturity. So what this tells us is that he does not need to be old, but he does need to be spiritually mature and can't be a new convert. He shouldn't be a baby Christian. A second thing that, that sets elders apart, even from the qualifications for deacons, is in verse 2. Listen to this. Therefore, an elder must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Here's the key phrase. Able to teach. Able to teach. Not every Christian has to be able to teach. Not every deacon has to be able to teach. But every elder, every pastor, overseer of God's church must be able to teach. What, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't necessarily just mean that he's somebody who wants to teach, because the Bible tells us pretty clearly that there are some who want to teach who ought not to teach. Now, on the other hand, it says that there are some who ought to be able to teach, but they haven't grown in spiritual maturity yet, as they ought to have to be able to teach yet. But an elder must be able to teach. I'll just give you four basic things that this ought to look like in First Baptist Church of Matawan as we are trying to discern, is this someone that we trust is able to teach? One is his personal dedication to Bible study. Able to teach what? Well, the answer is teach the Word, to teach the Word of God. An elder needs to be somebody who in his own personal life is on a regular and disciplined basis taking in the Word of God and being taught by God from the Bible. Secondly, he needs to be a reader of trustworthy Christian books. Okay? Now, I realize not every Christian is a reader, but an elder needs to be a reader. He needs to be somebody who is willing to take in faithful biblical teaching from other Bible teachers from ages past and from the current age, and to be able to pick up a book and to read through it. If you can't pick up a book and read it, then you probably ought not to be an elder, a teacher in the church. 
if you are really, really into YouTube videos of faithful preachers, I'm glad about that. But an elder needs to be somebody who is a minister of the Word, who can go deeper with books about the Bible. A third thing is that he needs to be in agreement with the church's doctrine. Now, I think that's built into what it says in Titus chapter 1, where it says that he needs to accept the trustworthy word as taught, right? As taught. Somebody who's going to be an elder in the church needs to be in agreement, not just with the general idea that the Bible is good, but with the way that we understand the Bible here in this church. In this church, that would mean that somebody who's going to be an elder needs to be convictionally Protestant, convictionally Reformed in his soteriology, convictionally Baptist in his ecclesiology. Those are not things that every Christian has to be, but if you're going to be an elder over a Reformed Baptist church, then you need to be on board with Reformed Baptist doctrine as well. And then fourth, and this is This might have been the first thing you thought of. He needs to be able to deliver an expository sermon that would edify the church. What's an expository sermon? It's where we pull out a passage of Scripture and we open it up, we expose it in order to feed the Word to God's church. Now, that doesn't mean that he has to be able to whip up an expository sermon in an hour on demand. It could be that it takes him a month to prepare a faithful expository sermon, but somebody who's going to be an elder needs to be able to stand in the pulpit, even if every once in a while, and to edify and feed God's church with God's word. So elders must be able to teach. I want to challenge you in this. Grow in God's grace for others' sake. Grow in God's grace for others' sake. It could be It could be that you listening to this, maybe you are a man who is currently praying through, would it be that God would have me to be an elder in this church or in another church soon or down the road? Maybe you're actually considering that. Whether that's you or whether you're any other Christian in here, I want to encourage you in this. Grow in God's grace not just for your own personal benefit, but for the benefit of others, all right? As we go through these things, as we go through these qualifications, we're saying we want and we pray, and we've had it on the prayer list for months now, that God would raise up biblically qualified men to serve as elders. You know why? It's because we need that. I want to just tell you personally, guys, it it, it is a blessing in my life to be a pastor, but I need to be pastored too. In in a way, you could almost see this as a, a, a selfish thing. I need pastors who who are overseeing and shepherding my soul. I need some of you men to grow in grace and to set aside some of the desires that you might have in other ways of other ways that you could, could spend your time because I need a pastor. And I think it's to be, gonna be to everybody's benefit that the pastors of this church would be pastored by each other. And, and, and you, not only to pastor me, but to pastor others to, to share in the shepherding and the care for, for the flock of God. Now, the rest of you, it's not just those who would potentially be pastors one day. It's this, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. It says, There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. 
and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now get this, this is the key verse. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Do you hear that? When he's talking about the graces that he would give you in growing Christ, in Christ-likeness, and when he's talking about the spiritual gifts that he would give you, he says that these are for the common good, not just for yourself, not just to say, boy, it sure is great that God did this in me, not to just take those things and apply them to how you can do better in business or something like that, but to say, God has done this in me for the purpose that I could then take what God has done in me and feed others' souls and care for my church, care for the goings-on of the church programmatically and institutionally, and care for the goings-on of the church in terms of getting into people's lives and building each other up in the faith. You need to grow in God's grace for the benefit of others and not just for your own benefit. Uh, Let me just say this real quick. If you have particular sins in your life, where you know, I am not above reproach. That's not just a personal matter. You need to take care of that, not just because the Bible says that you ought to, but because there are ways that you could be serving and building up the church and investing in other people's lives. You are held back from those things. Other people are held back from the benefit that they would receive from God's grace in your life by your refusal to walk in obedience to God. Don't walk in in disobedience to God. Don't say to yourself, this is just my struggle. Do the actual struggling of killing that sin and get out of the struggle and go and serve people. Turn, Turn your heart toward love for God and love for people Grow in God's grace and grow in holiness because your church family needs you to do that for their benefit. All right? Grow in grace for God's purposes and for God's people. Here's what it says in Romans 12, 3. By the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Don't get puffed up with arrogance, but there's a flip side of that too. He says, consider with sober judgment. If God has done something gracious in your life, if God, men, if God has biblically qualified you to serve as an elder, it is not arrogant to recognize that. In fact, we need you to recognize that. We need you to recognize with sober judgment, not with arrogance, but with sober judgment, God has done this in my life. He has given me this measure of faith. He has given me these graces. He has given me these gifts because my church needs it. And I'm going to give that in service to them. Men especially, consider how do I cultivate these qualities in my heart and in my life for the benefit of others and for the benefit of of the church. That, by the way, that's what we've been talking about for the last several weeks at four o'clock at the church leadership training. 
We've been going through these things, and we've been saying, men, no matter who you are, no matter whether you will ever serve in any of these offices or not, cultivate these qualities in your life for the benefit of those in your life, like your church and your family. When you pursue godliness, it's not just for yourself, it's for others. And listen to this. This is from what John Murray great New Testament scholar says about that verse in Romans 12, 3. He says, if we consider ourselves to possess gifts we do not have, then we have an inflated notion of our place and function. We sin by esteeming ourselves beyond what we are. But if we underestimate, then we are refusing to acknowledge God's grace, and we fail to exercise that which God has dispensed for our own sanctification and that of others. Put it this way. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to, but when God has actually given you the graces and gifts, embrace that sober-mindedly with sober judgment to serve others and love your church. Prayerfully consider, who is it among our church that God may have already gifted and qualified to serve as elders according to these qualifications? I want to encourage you guys, tell me names, Come to me privately, email me, call me, text me the names of particular men where even as you've gone through this and, and you would then go and pray on this in, in, in the leadership of the Holy Spirit through his word, let's have names. Who is it that we should nominate to serve as elders of this church? I suspect that a lot of us are going to come up with the same names. Now, the fact that one name got suggested, it's not a guarantee that that person is going to end up serving as an elder. There's all kinds of things that could come up. He may be providentially hindered just by the circumstances in his life from being able to do it at all. God can do that. We don't know his purposes. They are unsearchable sometimes. We don't know who it's going to be, but this is where it comes from. God's church recognizing God's gifts and God's graces in God's people for the benefit of those people through giving leaders who are godly. Now, I want to encourage you too. God loves disqualified people. God loves disqualified people. And in fact, there is not a single person in this room who either is not currently disqualified or has not been disqualified in the past. Because the Bible actually says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead in those sins. As I've talked about these things, and as I talked about how so many of these qualifications are things that every one of God's people ought to live up to, it is likely that God convicted you of sin in those things. And if that's the case... Praise God. Praise God for the work of his Holy Spirit to show you where you need to be forgiven and where you need to be cleansed. But here is the love of God for disqualified people. Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What we never want to do, we never want to give the impression, you must meet this high standard in order to come to Jesus. Or you must meet this high standard in order to come to church. 
or you must meet this high standard in order to become a member of the church. There are standards for membership, but here's the thing that we rejoice in. Here is the foundation that we're building on, is that God has shown his love for sinners. Not for qualified people, but for completely disqualified people. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Embrace Jesus. Embrace his forgiveness. Embrace his death for sinners and come to him and be forgiven. And I want to encourage you, it's possible, men, it is possible that today, as you sit there right now, you are completely disqualified from church office. You're a believer, but you're completely disqualified. It's possible that God would still do a mighty work in your life, cleanse you of that unrighteousness, forgive you, build you up and change you and qualify you and call you to serve his church even as an elder. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing to see? God absolutely loves to forgive sin, to qualify the unqualified, and how does he do it? He does it not by the law, not by the law that says here is the standard you must meet, but by the gospel, which says here is what God has done out of love for disqualified sinners. He sent his own son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, that we can grow in grace because as it says in Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin And if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Live with Christ, pursue Christ, grow in grace in Christ, not just for yourself, but for others as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have shown us love while we were completely lost, dead in our sins, that Christ died for sinners. I thank you for taking that work of redemption and applying it to our hearts by the Holy Spirit to make us born again. God, I pray for those who are sitting here today who are not born again. That probably has played itself out in a failure to take seriously the word of God today or to pay attention. God, I pray that you would grab hold of their hearts and I pray that you would show them their sin. I pray that you'd show them their mercy displayed at the cross of Jesus your love for sinners that is offered freely to them. And I pray that you do a mighty work and take hold of them and save them. God, we pray that you would qualify the disqualified for heaven by faith in Jesus. God, we pray today that you would raise up and help us to identify biblically qualified elders to come alongside and to help shepherd this church for your glory because of your design and your blueprints that you've laid out and for our good. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.